Welcome to the Strategy Driven Podcast, Making Change Work. If decisions are always rational, why are changees resisting? On behalf of the entire Strategy Driven team, I would like to welcome you to this edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, Making Change Work. If decisions are always rational, why are changees resisting? The Strategy Driven Podcast focuses on the tools and techniques executives and managers can use to improve their organization's alignment and accountability to ultimately achieve superior results. These podcasts elaborate on the best practice and warning flag articles found on the Strategy Driven website at www.strategydriven.com. In this episode, Sharon Drew Morgan, developer of Buying Facilitation, shares with us her insights on the difficulty in effectively implementing business change. In this, the fourth in a series of change management podcasts, we explore the rationality of decisions and their impact on change management. So now, without any further delays, let's get started. We are privileged to be joined by Sharon Drew Morgan, New York Times best-selling author and developer of a change management model based on buy-in that she's written about in her latest book, Dirty Little Secrets. Sharon Drew is the visionary thought leader behind Buying Facilitation, a decision facilitation model that focuses on helping buyers and those who would be impacted by the accompanying change manage their internal, unconscious, and behind-the-scenes issues that must be addressed before they purchase anything or buy into the requested change. She has served many well-known companies, including KPMG, Unisys, IBM, Wachovia, and Bose. Sharon Drew, welcome back to the Strategy Driven Podcast. Hi, Nathan. Thank you. Well, this, I believe, is our fourth episode of six in our Making Change Work podcast series. So I'm thrilled to have you back. Thank you. To start out with, I'd like to take just a brief moment to remind our audience of how we define change, which we did in the first episode, and we said that change was about buy-in, that change affects a system, whether that would be a system comprised of people, or it could be technology systems or process systems that those people actually create, but that when we have a change, it is really a request of the system to do something differently, and that the system has to be accepting of the change in order to make it happen. Now, with that said, I wanted to start out by asking you to remind us again from our second podcast episode what a system is and how it acts to maintain itself. 
Okay. This is one of my very favorite topics. This is actually what half of uh, Dirty Little Secrets is about, change in systems and decision-making. Because for some reason in the field of change management, the word system doesn't come up very often, and I can't figure out why. A system is a grouping of interdependent bits of things and people and policies. It could even be a, a, a room full of different things. But when it comes, to, when it has to do with people, it's a system of interdependent rules that everyone buys into. So people at Google dress differently than the people at IBM, I would guess. And the people at Google have their laundry done for them and have childcare on site, and I suspect people at IBM don't have that happen. They're made up of even people of the same age, but they have different rules, they buy into different beliefs, and they operate accordingly, um, and they all buy in and agree to that specific set of rules. And just like a a family with a husband, wife, and two kids next door to another family with husband, wife, and two kids. They have different rules, different relationships, different beliefs, different ways of dressing, different ways of interacting. Just like they look the same from outside and are different, all of us live in systems of families, work systems, friends systems, and they're all unique. Mm -hmm. The problem happens when change is addressed because every decision that is made is a change management model, is a change management problem because the system is being asked to change. Anytime we have something that needs to be changed within a system, we face the wrath of everything in the system that fights daily to maintain itself because systems maintain themselves. And the status quo within the system is a group of rules and roles and relationships and people and policies and, and history and feelings and egos. And all of these pieces, these interdependent bits, agree to operate in relationship to each other in some way that makes everybody and everything happy. And at, at the point where something feels it doesn't uh, fit, when something doesn't fit, when something can't comply, then that thing is ejected from the system. Now, in this podcast, we've dedicated this episode to talking about decisions and answering the questions, if decisions are always rational, then <laughs> why do our changees resist? So I'm just going to dive right in. And I want to <laughs> this ask you. This is a big you, topic. You understand there's a lot. There's been millions of pages of discussion and books written about this. You understand that. I do. And, and, and that's, that's the part I want to talk about first is you've always said that decisions are always rational. But what I think we see in the contemporary alcoholic literature or the workplace data, 
there's a lot of folks out there that would suggest that decisions are irrational. So why do you say decisions are always rational? So I have a question. When you're thinking about something you have to do differently and when you have in the past when you thought about moving or buying a new suit or changing jobs, mm-hmm. have you ever sat yourself down and said, I think I'm going to make an irrational decision right now? No. Have you ever done that? Nope. That's nope. right. And when you look back a day, a week, a year, a decade later, you can say, Whew, that wasn't the best decision I ever made. But at the moment of making the decision, it was the best decision you knew how to make. Yes. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So who is saying that the decisions are irrational? Who? It's not you when you're the decision maker. <laughs> so it's someone from outside who's viewing your behavior and determining based on their own judgment that what you have done isn't rational. Decisions are in the eye of the beholder. Now, let's let's talk about how decisions get made that deems them to be rational. We don't make any decisions outside of our belief system. Mm -hmm. And our behaviors are nothing more than our beliefs in action. Okay. So when we behave a certain way, that is an indication of our beliefs. Okay? I agree. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'm deciding something based on a belief system. Who Who's going to tell me that I'm irrational if that's my belief system? It seems to me that the only people calling these decisions irrational are scientists who have a viewpoint that is not being met. I hear salespeople say that buyers are stupid constantly, all during a day. There's never a day that goes by that I don't hear one salesperson say to me, buyers are stupid. Why? Why are they seeing that? Because they see a need, they have a solution that fixes the need, and it's obvious to them that the person should buy and fix the problem. They don't know if the people inside are going through a merger. They don't know if the people inside have been shaken up and somebody is leaving and somebody else is coming or they're having financial issues or there's a new head of technology or they're outsourcing technology and they're revamping the whole company while this this big change stuff happens. We are outsiders to whatever's going on behind the scenes. Whether it's a person's beliefs or a company's beliefs, people only go through change when their system is willing to let that happen. So we can only make decisions according to how our system will accept something new, not based on the person outside. So therefore, I think that All decisions are rational to the person and people who are making them.
Okay. Well, now let me play devil's advocate for a moment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, if all decisions are rational, then my next question is why or what is causing the resistance to, let me call them, logical changes? And if I could give you an example, is I worked for an employer and they made a decision to, instead of paying us on an hourly basis, they would pay us a salary. But what they did is they gave us such a significant pay raise. Now, we got no overtime, but they gave us such a significant pay raise that our pay went up. And you know what? Everybody hated less. it. They, uh, they worked less, right. Yeah, everybody hated it. Now, everybody's pay went up. It's just that we were told calculationally that our pay was no longer calculated on a 40-hour week, but was rather a fixed amount per year. So that, that's kind of my example. But, but everybody resisted that change. So I can tell you why. Okay. I can make a good guess. Mm -hmm. First of all, how long had it been the other way? Uh, since anyone could ever remember. Yes, it's always that way. So... Whatever was going on in terms of, and there were bonuses, yes? There were bonuses, but the bonuses weren't impacted at all. Or uh, for those whose bonuses were based on the salary, because the salary went up, uh, or the amount of money you made in a year went up, the bonuses got bigger also. So are you telling me that the hours didn't change and people worked the same amount of time yes. and made a lot more money? Yes. And there was no other change that happened internally? Nope. No other change. All right. So I have a question. What was, what is it, how do I say this? Job descriptions. Mm -hmm. How did people see themselves and their jobs differently with the new pay structure? And, and that's a great question. When it was communicated, everyone had always been designated as members of management. But it, we were working at a power plant, and so we worked shift work. Because you've got to keep the lights to be able to turn on 24-7, 365. So people, while they viewed themselves as members of management... Uh, I, I would still suggest that that hourly descriptor, component, calculational method, whatever you want to call it, uh, felt appropriate because unlike, I, I would say, that probably the vast majority of salaried workers, these individuals did not work uh, a, a traditional daytime job. They worked back shifts and swing shifts and holidays and weekends, kind of a thing. And what happened with the new pay? So essentially with the new pay, everyone got a 5% pay raise. And their jobs weren't not different at all? Nope. Jobs changed absolutely zero. It's and they didn't see themselves as being different? 
Correct. Well, that one I can't. I that one I have no idea because it usually when people's pay is changed in some way, they see themselves differently. Mm-hmm. They see themselves with. Usually, we see ourselves according to our ego needs of how we get compensated. Um, I I charge X amount and. I have no flexibility around it. I'd rather work free than cheap, mm-hmm. which in some situations would probably make no sense whatsoever if I can get something rather than nothing. But I see myself as having a certain value, and that value is attached to how much I charge. Mm-hmm. So in order for me to see myself in a certain way, and that's part of my own internal system of who I am. So systems have identities, Mm -hmm. and that pay is very closely tied to people's identities. Mm -hmm. So I have to assume that something happened along the way that gave people the ability to shift the way they saw themselves in their jobs. And the pay was a symbol of that shift. Yeah, and and I would not suggest that that is not the case here. That while the pay went up, that the fact that it was calculated or just a a salary to some people felt wrong. And the the amount of money didn't matter. No, it wasn't the amount of money. I mean, we, we were all very well-compensated individuals. This is what I'm saying. So that might seem irrational, but if they went from being compensated for what they did to just being generally compensated for how often, for how long they worked, and they would have to see themselves differently as an employee and as as a worker, then the money didn't matter. It wasn't about the money. It was about the ego issues. Yes. And, and I think that's probably. I think I think you got it right on right on the head. It's. It, I think that was probably it. it. It factored into a lot of how they viewed themselves. And that's the problem with change. You see, we as outsiders see a problem, and we have a very rational approach to how to change and fix this problem. We've got the solution, whether we're salespeople or change agents or coaches. We have the solution. And so we go mightily into the fray, assuming because we have right on our side, and we push in and say, oh, look, I have this wonderful solution, and I'm going to make everything better, and how dare you resist? And what we forget is that the system has rules and holds in relationships, and they all agree, and anything from the outside is a way of getting the system off balance. I mean, there's this wonderful scientific term that I've mentioned here before called homeostasis. Mm -hmm. Systems fight to maintain balance. And anything new, even if it's changing the way you're compensated, giving you more money, anything new creates disruption in the system. And one of the problems we have, which creates resistance over and over and over again, is pushing in from the outside, assuming that the inside will say yes and adopt, um, rather than starting with the inside 
and getting them to buy in to change first, and then developing the um, the change around the buy-in. Right. And there was absolutely none of that that went on. There was none of the trying to get people to accept and and the system to adopt ahead of time. Right. Because it was assumed that the change was so logical, That's uh, right. everyone would be thrilled to get like a 5% pay raise right in the middle of the year. So I have a question. Mm-hmm. What is it about logic that makes logic be the determinator? Well, logic, I don't think, account for the emotional side of that. That's right. And it doesn't account for the system. Yeah. So I'm going to ask again. What is it about logic that everyone believes is the determinator? The the reason that you should do something is because it's logical. Right, right. What makes... And and we don't know who's developed the logic either, do we? Well, no, we don't. And the logic itself could be flawed. That's right. And most logic is flawed, isn't it? Uh, it is. In fact, we write about that on the website all the time about flawed right. logic. So, and and who's to say who's right? Mm-hmm. Who's to say who's right? Yeah. Um, I was uh, I was having a communication with a young man recently who was writing something about buying facilitation on his blog, and he wrote about it in such a way, uh, something like, um, buying facilitation can um, uh, make sure that our buyers buy without as big a push as normal, something, something like that, which I was like in a state of shock because that's not exactly the way I would define buying facilitation. And I said, will you please change that line? And he said, well, is it factually wrong? And I went, uh, uh, no, but there's a huge bias in there. That's not what I want to be saying. And he said, but is it factually wrong? Yeah. And I said, you know, you can talk about Joe and say, Joe's is falling down drunk, and he drinks so much, and two or three times a month, he gets so plastered that he comes into work, and he's all black and blue from falling down all over the place, and and people are afraid to trust him and don't know when he's going to start drinking again. Or you can say, Joe has a wonderful wife and five children, and he plays with them most weekends, the whole weekend, and they go on these great vacations together, and they've all been together for a long time, and they really have a wonderful family life. So what's true? And you will see, Joe, through the prism of which definition you use. Mm-hmm. They're both true. And where is the bias? The bias is wherever the outside person decides to put it. Does that mean it's true or not true? Systems aren't rational. They're crazy. They're filled with all kinds of crazy rules and crazy people, and and you make allowance for this, and then you always make allowance for this with everybody else, and then people come in and say, how come you're making allowance for that? That's how we, we always do it. Crazy. So I don't understand what makes rational the arbiter 
of good sense. How's that? Right. Okay. That's fair Scientists, enough. scientists will tell me that I'm irrational. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, Sharon True, I was wondering if there was something of value that we got from resistance. Can resistance be good, or does it necessarily always turn out to be a bad thing? I think resistance, if used properly, if you're not going to do it right to begin with so that you get buy-in first and you avoid resistance, resistance can be used as a hallmark of additional change needed. So if you're getting a specific sort of resistance and you can follow that back to how it got started and who started and so forth, you will probably find a group of unhappy people who were not who who felt unheard, who disagreed with the change because of personal issues, job issues, ego issues, whatever. And if you can listen to them, you can find out where your own problems are in your implementation. Mm-hmm. I um, I interviewed somebody who used to be the CEO of um, was it the Container Store Kip somebody. And he said that, I think it was a container store, and he said, we let people make mistakes when they come. And we know that they're going to happen, and we just try to limit the cost to under a million dollars. He said, but when we let people make these mistakes, they become leaders because they realize, realize the responsibility they have to each other, to clients, to the company, Mm-hmm. They realize the cost to their own ego, their own value, their own place within the team, and what they've done to everyone else. And he said, people don't mis- make mistakes twice. Um, we let them make them once, and, and again, we, they try to contain them. Um, so here's a, a situation where mistakes are good because they're, they're teaching leadership and make people into leaders. When you have resistance, that's like a a, a bell calling saying, you've got an error. You've made something um, not work, and what can you do as an outsider to make it better? One of the things we do is we tend to blame the people that are resisting Mm -hmm. for resisting rather than blaming ourselves for helping create that problem. Okay. As you were discussing or describing resistance and it being a good thing. It reminds me of something that Alfred Sloan, the uh, former chairman and chief executive officer of General Motors, is cited as, as having said, and that is he wouldn't make a, a decision unless he had resistance. And it was for the exact reason that you stated. It's that he needed to make the position he was taking or the company was taking, more robust. They had to explore all those other avenues that could possibly have some downfalls to them because that's what was viewed as causing the resistance. Now, what we're going to talk about, I think, on our next podcast Mm -hmm. is a way to get buy-in so there is no resistance. What I find so fascinating in all the literature in the field, and I've said this before, that in all the research I've done, 
I have found the use of the term buy-in once. And once, once. Yeah. It's kind of shocking. And, mm-hmm. and the word resistance comes up millions and millions and millions of times because resistance is assumed. But think about it. I mean, even in the field of sales, where there's an average of a 7% close rate, mm-hmm. the field assumes that 7% equals success. Yeah. Well, you know what? As an outsider, actually, I'm an insider. But I think that's irrational because if you told, if you just use the term, use the number of forty percent, then salespeople would have to do something different to get more than seven percent. Mm-hmm. They'd say, "Oh, well, I can use the sales model for this part, but what do I do for the rest? I need something else to give me more numbers because sales doesn't give me more than that." Instead, we've 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 erased reality and said seven percent equals success. I mean, imagine getting on a plane and saying we we get there seven percent of the time. Yeah. Uh, so it's the same with resistance. We have assumed that there will be resistance, and then we spend all of our time acting on managing the resistance mm-hmm. rather than making sure we don't get it and seeing a way around it. Right. And so fundamentally, because I know this is the topic of our our next podcast, so we just want a little tease here, what should managers and and, uh, executives do to avoid resistance? Ah, this is a big conversation. But the first thing they have to do is get buy-in from the inside Mm -hmm. and not push. And that is going to be a big topic next time, and we'll discuss it, and then we're going to put it all together on, on number six. That's right. That's right. So next time for our episode number five is why buy-in is necessary and how to achieve it. And just as you said in the last episode, we're going to talk about pulling everything together and a truly radical approach to change management that we're calling real leadership. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine that, that we would – Exercise real leadership and change management. So, well, Sharon Drew, I want to thank you for your time and for sharing your insights on the rationality associated with decisions and its impact on change management. I've again enjoyed our conversation tonight and look forward to having you back and our listeners back for our fifth episode of Making Change Work here in a few weeks. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast. I would like to personally thank Sharon Drew Morgan for being with us today and sharing her insights on the rationality of decisions and their impact on change management. As always, we would appreciate receiving your feedback by email at podcast at strategydriven.com. If you enjoyed the show, please consider voting for us on Podcast Alley and visiting our website at www.strategydriven.com. You can find more information about Sharon Drew Morgan at www.buyingfacilitation.com. Until next time, so long.